Konnichiwa, Nihon Cricket Podcast Oyokoso. Welcome to the Japan Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Kerr, and in this special crossover episode with the excellent team over at Emerging Cricket, rather than asking the questions, I will be mostly discussing matters surrounding the Under-19 World Cup and how, after qualifying for the tournament in 2020, Japan has been removed from the 2022 edition in favour of Papua New Guinea. It's a slightly longer episode than usual, but packed with good stuff, so I hope you enjoy it. And do go across and subscribe to the Emerging Cricket Podcast if you want to follow Dan, Tim and Nick as they shine the spotlight on all the cricket that goes on away from the full members of the ICC. Well, if you caught the last Under-19 Cricket World Cup a couple of years ago, you would have seen Japan feature for the very first time on the global stage. In recent events, we've seen PNG qualify for the next Under-19 World Cup and a man who will talk to us all about that and Japanese cricket in general, Head of Cricket Operations of the Japan Cricket Association. Alan Kurt, thank you for joining the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Thanks very much, guys. Nice to be on. Thanks for inviting me. It's a great chance for us to have you on, albeit in not the greatest circumstances in terms of Japanese cricket, and we'll get to that in a couple of moments. But to bring it back to your story and how you've got to Japan, you've worked in cricket in multiple different ways, travelled all around parts of the emerging world, writing about cricket, discussing cricket. How does Alan Kerr end up in Japan as head of cricket operations? <laughs> yeah, it's a long story. I'll try and keep it as short as possible. Um, <laughs> So I was a travel agent uh, initially. I worked at uh, Flight Center, which you guys in Australia will I'm sure be familiar with. And then did up for seven years. And then after that, I worked for a adventure travel company called Wild Frontiers for three years. I'd initially always wanted to be a sports journalist. Well, actually, I initially wanted to have a career in sport, but unfortunately realized I wasn't any good at any sports. Um, so we've all been there. Yeah. I guess we've all had some of that. Some of us are still dreaming. <laughs> Keep the dream alive, man. <laughs> um, so then I kind of, yeah, I'd say that I wanted to, my two big passions in life were sport and travel. So I wanted to try and combine those if I could. I spent seven years at flight center, basically paying for me to go to a couple of world cups. So I went to the rugby world cup in Australia in 03, and then the cricket world cup in the Caribbean in 2007. And off the back of that, I ended up doing the Everest test, organizing a cricket match up at base camp. And off the back of that, I'd say that I wanted to change my sort of career path and go into more adventurous travel. So I left Flight Center and ended up at Wild Frontiers and visiting some pretty funky places like Afghanistan and Pakistan. And I'd already been to India once, but I went back again for, for a month. And I'd sort of built up this relationship with Nepal already. So I spent a fair bit of time there. And yeah, that was a really fun period in my life, going to these sorts of places and seeing the game there as well. But uh, the company there was, was a small company. It was great fun to work with, but it was pretty sort of low ceiling in terms of my career pathway. So I decided around 32 that I wanted to have a real crack at working in sport. And yeah, the Japan cricket job was advertised on the ICC website, um, stuck in an application and had a couple of quick interviews, which I thought went pretty well. Didn't hear anything for a while. Funnily enough, I was in Iraqi Kurdistan when I got the email offering me the job so that was a weird experience um wow so yeah i'd actually been out to japan to visit a friend of mine who lives here in 2012 the year after the big earthquake and tsunami so i had a bit of an idea of what to expect with japan uh, and then yeah came out here 2014 and i've been here ever since which is i would definitely say longer than i planned to be here but uh, i've got a, a japanese wife now and recently my own half japanese baby so yeah things are um pretty settled i guess uh, so since, well, since 2014, well, at least in the, in the time that we've been doing our merger cricket project and then following associate cricket for a number of years, Japan has really made strides in that time. And we've seen it at the very high end at the under 19 world cup level, but even on the ground, we've seen a development of Sano. We've seen streamed live events of domestic tournaments. We've seen the growth of cricket in the country and a number of international players who have come up the ranks through junior programs all the way to senior cricket. As a kind of general question, what do you think has been your greatest achievement as part of the Japanese cricket fraternity? And what have you seen in the last eight years or seven years that makes you really proud to be part of the organization? Well, I think the job I was brought here to do initially was a funded project from the ICC to develop an entry-level program for junior cricketers for seven to 12 year olds, the cricket blast program, which is still running now. In many ways, it hasn't, how, it's how you define success, right? So when that program was rolled out, the idea was that we'd have, you know, thousands of kids playing cricket in that age group. And, and that hasn't happened. But what has happened is that the quality of kids we've had has improved because the kids who are in that program and who've come through, they've kept playing. And so when we put together the under 19 squad for 2019 qualifier we had 11 of the 14 kids 
in that squad had come through the Cricket Blast program, started in 2014. So that was incredibly satisfying. And yeah, obviously qualifying for a World Cup it is amazing. I mean, it's hard to, to top, but the fact that those kids, the majority of them are graduating into senior cricket, you know, the goal is to give people a lifelong love of the sport. There's very few people in Japan, very few Japanese people in Japan, at least over the age of 40 who are still involved in cricket. So it's still a very young sport. We don't have that, you know, whole band of volunteers. Uh, so trying to create those has been great. And yeah, I think the achievements by going to a World Cup, we put together a strategy in 2018, which the, the Japanese roughly translates to, we want to inspire dreams that people don't think are possible. And certainly at the time, going to a global event was not on anyone's radar. Uh, it wasn't something we, our, our under 19 KPI was to have a team in a tournament. So winning it wasn't even on the table. So, you know, we've proved that if you, you know, if you try, if you put your mind to it, success can be had. And so I think that just helped change the mindset for a lot of people here. And, you know, we probably spent a lot of time focusing on junior cricket at the expense of senior cricket uh, and our national men's and women's teams probably hadn't got the attention that, that maybe they deserved and they thought they should have because we invested so much in youth, but then to qualify for world cup, everyone kind of got it understood why. So yeah, that was really satisfying. Well, you, you mentioned that, you know, winning that qualification tournament and, and making the world cup. The ultimate way that Japan went through was through a forfeiture after uh, an unfortunate incident with uh, the PNG players, uh, meaning they couldn't be on the field. And and that was really disappointing because we tipped that game as being one that Japan probably had a chance of winning because they, they were very well prepared, even though PNG is historically the, the stronger team. Uh, talk to us a bit about the, the drama of that, because we were sort of looking at it all from a distance and frantically trying to work out what was going on when, when, you know, when PNG weren't on the field. What what happened there on, on your end? Oh, I mean, to put it down as a strange day or a strange 24 hours would be an understatement. It was mixed emotions, put it that way. I um I got the messages at around 10 o'clock at night from the ICC rep who was here at the time saying that there had been, you know, an instant, a call had come in saying that they thought one of the teams had done something. So you're like, okay, what's, this is interesting. And then details started to emerge gradually. And, and suddenly it was like one in the morning. And I was getting regular text messages. What's going on? What's going on? And I got the message at one in the morning saying, yeah, they're, they're not going to be able to play tomorrow. They're going to have to forfeit. And I'm lying in bed, head spinning. I've got to be up in five hours to, you know, prevent that there's still going to be another game going on. So work doesn't stop. And I'm thinking, how, how am I going to break this news to the players and to the coaching staff and yeah i went down i spoke to my ceo i mean he was i've never seen him like that before or since he was absolutely devastated because the fear of what something like that could do to cricket in japan which we've spent so long building and him particularly putting his heart and soul into the city of sano for us yeah it was a massive disappointment because we really felt we had a shot at it i mean going into the tournament we had zero expectations really we knew how good our players were but we haven't seen the other teams in the region since 2000 and whatever, 11. So we had no idea what the standard was going to be like. No one did. So after the first game and, and beating Samara by uh, 170 runs or something, we're like, oh, geez, we might go all right here. And then, you know, we had to look at, at PNG and I think one of the games that they'd struggled to get home, I think against Samara, they struggled chasing a low score. And we're like, Do you know what? They're beatable. And even though our team was young, we felt that our better players were at a similar level of their better players. And it's just, you know, the guys that then make up the rest of the 11 if they're, they're on that day. But... The tournament had a real habit of people who won the toss tended to win games. So not we had a lot of chat on the day before, you know, win the toss, bat first, in with a really good shout. And yeah, we were all just really disappointed that we didn't get to have that, that opportunity to play them because it would have been a good game. And certainly the way things are right now, I think it would, things might feel even, even more differently given uh, what's transpired, but it was an odd day for sure. And it's not the way anyone wants to follow the for World Cup, obviously, but at the same time, like. I went and I, we got the Japan players and I gathered them all in the car park just around the corner uh, at the end of the building, sort of a little private spot and had to do this all through a translator as well to say, look, you know, and of course half the group understands English. So the news that gets through to half of them and then the other guy, he's hearing this news for the first time too. So he's like, what? And he's translated. <laughs> and, um, and Dougal's there, he's hearing this news for the first time too. Dougal Bainfield, the coach and the boys were all, they all went mad. They're all jumping up and down, hugging each other, just yelling, we're going to the World Cup. I don't, I don't think they cared too much in that moment. I think probably it, it dawned a bit later and certainly Marcus and I, Marcus Thurgate, the captain, had chatted a bit about it and he was, he was disappointed, certainly. But um, Dougal just, he was just shocked. He didn't know what to make of it. And it became a very odd day, really, the rest of that day and, and the next few days was, yeah, all very surreal. We kind of laugh about it now, but it was incredibly stressful at the time and really difficult and not something I would wish on anyone, actually. Yeah, when we got a, the tip at the time, it's like, 
Um, <laughs> what do we even make of this? It's... Yeah. So trying to get in contact with people to ver- verify it, although it would come from a very good source. Um, yeah. Poor old uh, Jane X ICC for the region as well. It sounds like that wasn't her happiest 24 hours of life either. But for the same reason as you just say, you know, about not wishing it on anyone, the, the implications what it could have been for you, but also for, for the kids. You know, Japan is different from a lot of, it's a very different country, like the culture and the way things are done here. The hotels that people stay in are not resort type hotels like, you, like you've experienced in, in Vanuatu or Samara or the, other in the region. They are business hotels designed for people to stay one night. There's no swimming pool. There's no outdoor garden. It's a small room and a dining area. And so people are cooped up. There's not a lot to do. So, you know, it's up to us to really do a bit more education around that, which we, we were looking to do this time around. I mean, we have Japanese onsens where it's like a public bath where you go to relax and bathe and one of the teams was like playing volleyball in it. <laughs> you know, you got these Japanese businessmen trying to have a relaxing afternoon. A bunch of kids smashing the ball around. It's like, no, guys, that's, that's not what this is for. Um, so, yeah, that, that's on us to explain that culture. But, you know, it's a big job. And the other thing that really came out of it, I felt, and I made this point to the ICC at the time, was I just didn't think there were enough adults with each group. You know, you've got a, a coach and a manager for uh, 14 kids. And I'm not sure that's enough when the kids are coming from some of the islands where education perhaps isn't, you know, the greatest and, and it's, it's such a different culture. I'm not surprised it's a big culture shock to people. Culture shock for me when I arrived and I'm well traveled. Mm. I'm guessing for, you know, the first time off the island, let alone with a passport leaving the country as well. Well, to give you some more context around like cultural environments, you know, the tournament before we'd hosted was a women's event. And at the closing ceremony, the Islander girls went outside and started doing some of their dances that they do, you know, which is pretty totally normal. You know, some of the, some of the guys joined in and, you know, it was a bit of a dance in the street thing. Next thing you know, the police have rocked up. Someone's called the police on them. It's just a load of ladies dancing in the street. That's the most harmless thing you can ever see. But, you know, in Japan, that's not something you see every day and people freaked out. Yeah, it's funny, you know, Japan's sort of seen as a Western country in, you know, it is in some ways, but it, it is you know, very different in a lot of other ways. And yeah, it's, it's interesting that there is that kind of dual aspect to it. Yeah, that's a, a whole other conversation. But before I moved over here, someone said to me that when you arrive in Japan, you're at first, you're very like wide-eyed, like, wow, this place is so different, so crazy, Whoa, all the bright lights and everything, and robots. And then you're here for a few months and you kind of realize actually, you know, people do their, you know, nine hour days and people take the train or the bus to work and go to the supermarket and it feels actually quite like normal life. And then after you've been there about nine months, you're like, nah, this place is different. It's really really different scratch the surface and it's just different and and i went through that exact journey i was advised of it before and then when i got here i was like yeah that's spot on before we get into i suppose it is a controversy and and the news that came out over the last couple of weeks in regards to qualifying for the next under 19 world cup with a cancellation of the qualifier event for East Asia, Pacific and Asia as well. Take us back to the under-19 World Cup experience in South Africa. I remember you guys got washed out against New Zealand in the first game. So didn't lose every game. That's a positive. That's something to, to start off with. And while the results on the field, the score lines might have looked a little bit skewed, there were certainly some fascinating and important contributions by a number of players. I remember Shunaguchi at the top of the order blunting a lot of the bowling attacks. There were some inspiring performances with the ball as well as the bat. Talk to us about that complete experience because I'm sure your kids in particular would have learned so many things about the game of cricket at that next level because they've they've been given the opportunity to compete at the highest level possible and they've been able to kind of apply those lessons in cricket afterwards and, and entering the senior ranks as well. Yeah, the experience was absolutely brilliant. Of the group that we took, 15 players and five support staff, I think. I was the only person who'd been to South Africa before. Two of our players didn't have passports prior to the trip. So it gives you an idea of, you know, what we were dealing with. Most of them hadn't been out of Japan. And so it was incredibly different for, for everyone. And we got there and, you know, you arrive into Johannesburg and it's a long flight, really long going by Dubai, but that, you mentioned that game, New Zealand game, they were, I can't remember what the score was, but they were motoring along pretty well. They'd lost, we'd taken two wickets uh, and that was, that was great. You know, great moments to get a couple of wickets and um, the game got, got washed out, as you mentioned, and we're on the, the bus on the way home and uh, I've gone on to quick info and I've seen the table's been updated and ours was the first game in the group and there we are, top of the league. <laughs> and so you can imagine all the singing on the bus on the way back to the hotel, like we are top of the league. <laughs> Um, that was probably the highlight, to be honest. Um, it was great. We then had a, a barbie and, um, 
a few drinks with the Kiwi team uh, that was staying at the same hotel. So I organized that. Uh, I was there as team manager. And so I tried, I wanted to do that with every team, but New Zealand pretty much the only team that actually took us up on the offer. We did have a bit of a chat with the England boys after the game, but not, not back at the hotel. So that was really cool. They were really good fun. But some of our guys, yeah, you mentioned Shu, I think for him, he, funny enough, the two guys who did the best at the World Cup were the two guys who had shockers in qualifying. Shu and Neil Date couldn't buy a run in qualifying, kept nicking off, but he got a 50 against Canada. Um, he took that, the first wicket, the Japan goal at the World Cup, and he's since been called up to the full men's squad. So yeah, those were, those were great moments. And certainly Neil getting his 50 was a real highlight. Kento Altadobel as well probably deserves a mention. He he performed pretty well throughout. And although he didn't get the rewards, uh, Soro Chiki did, did pretty well, especially as he'd only been bowling spin for six months. and bowling seam at the qualifier. So he, he came on a lot. Uh, he's been promoted up to the senior squad as well. Marcus Thurgate didn't quite have the tournament that he would have wanted. He, in the warm-up game against Scotland, he batted absolutely beautifully. Uh, he only made 30-odd, but was absolutely looked like he was going to have a day out. And we were all thinking, yeah, okay, great. Marcus is on that. That's going to help. And then basically didn't get another run for the tournament. <laughs> Kept missing straight ones. So it was a learning experience. Like you said, I mean, the India game playing a televised match was, yeah, with all the interviews and media around it was a serious experience. And I mean, that match as it happened was played literally with the stadium where Japan got crushed 150 to 10 or something by New Zealand in the Rugby World Cup in 94, I think it was. That stadium is right right there looking over where we played the cricket match. So it was we, we actually did that the next morning. We kind of talked about, you know, Japan had had this massive setback in, in a Rugby World Cup at that. It's still the record amount of points conceded at a Rugby World Cup. But they kept getting up, dusting themselves down, coming back, and we'd all seen how Japan had done at Rugby World Cups in recent times. So we were just on the start of that journey, we hope. And we, that's why we keep needing the opportunities to, to go back. That's why competing in World Cups is so important. 2015 at the Rugby World Cup when they beat South Africa, that is all the inspiration and all the evidence that you need that stuff like this is so important in the development of particular sports in specific countries. So that brings us to the controversy that has ensued over the last month or so in that under-19 World Cup qualifiers in specific regions haven't been able to be held due to a blanket COVID-19 ban. And we saw the Americas, Asia, and your East Asia Pacific qualifiers all cancelled due to that. And then based on the guidelines actually approved by the ICC Development Committee and the ICC Board, Canada, the UAE, and PNG all progressed to the Under-19 World Cup automatically on the basis of them securing the most wins in the last five Under-19 qualifying events in each respective region. Now, it doesn't take Einstein to work out that that is, I suppose, flawed in many ways because the crop of players that you have at those individual tournaments are different across those five tournaments. And to us on the outside, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. What was your initial reaction to that, knowing that PNG qualified automatically? You guys missed out. After playing at the Under-19 World Cup in early 2020, what were your initial thoughts and, and what was the course of action after that? Well, my initial thoughts, are, you say you edited out bad language, so I probably shouldn't say them. It'll just be a stream of beats. <laughs> Now, initial thoughts were amusement and bafflement, really. So the timeline of, of how it went, there was a development committee meeting in November uh, last year, and we got wind in advance of the meeting, like a day or two before, that this proposal was coming up. So we went to the EAP office and said, look, we've heard that this thing might be on the table. Can you find out if they are confirming it or just discussing the options? We heard back from them a day or two later, the day after the meeting, saying it's been confirmed. To which point we're like, whoa, we've made the point that once something's confirmed, we know how hard it is to get it overturned. Um, it's basically impossible. And so it's proved. So we were really keen to get in and speak to someone before the decision got made, which didn't happen. So the process since has been long and frustrating and, uh, well, an up and down pride swallowing siege, frankly. But there's, there's two main parts of it. And one is the process and the other is the outcome. The process I think is relevant for all emerging cricket nations because it's a precedent that's being set. The outcome is obviously very Japan focused and emotional, but before I even go into that, I do want to make the point that I'm aware that whatever decision they made was going to be difficult for someone to take. There's always going to be losers in these situations. So I appreciate that. It, they were in an unprecedented situation and that they were just trying to come up with something that would work. And from our point of view, had the same decision been reached with everybody knowing all of the facts of the case, we would have accepted it much more graciously or easily. 
the simple fact is that people who made the decision don't know the full story. And the big part of that, and that comes back to the process and how the process has changed. And this is COVID's fault and no one could have prepared for that. But development committee meetings used to last two days. Now they're done in a few hours over a Zoom call. So obviously things get missed. And I'm not having a crack at development committee because it's run by a bunch of volunteers, essentially. So they've got a very difficult job. They get sent a huge dossier of things to go through in advance. So they have a lot to discuss and it's only natural that things kind of get glossed over. I guess this wasn't a high priority item. Um, from what we've been told, so we went back through the EAP regional office who have been really good, incidentally, the EAP regional office have been there to talk to it's, they're in a very difficult situation because, you know, they have to represent all members, you know, we've got us kicking off and I'm sure that, um, Papua New Guinea are, you know, delighted with the outcome as they would be. And I, I certainly do not have any issue with Papua New Guinea, like this is not about them at all. So we went back to the, through them and said, look, we need to speak to someone about this. We got redirected to the, um, head of global, no, the global events and pathways manager. I think his job title is Gurjit Singh. Gurjit told us that the following three options were considered, which was performances over the previous three tournaments, uh, over the previous five tournaments, or the most recent winner. Those were the three things that had been discussed. And they had decided that five tournaments gave a more accurate representation of, let's find the actual wording, sustained commitment to under 19 cricket. Now. I find that a little bit hard to swallow because we have been committed, you know, Vanuatu have had a sustained commitment to under 19 cricket. We were immediately told that disputes resolution committee is the place where we could go to. So we had that in the back pocket, but we didn't really want to go down that route. We wanted to speak to people. We wanted to have a dialogue, find out how the decision was made, why it was made. Did everyone know the full story? And I'll get to what the full story was in a moment, but there was no engagement. I mean, Gurja came back and said, yeah, I have to jump on the call. We went straight back. Yeah, let's have a call whenever you want. No, no reply. EAP came back to us. Let us know when this call is and we'll jump on it. Sure. Just trying to get it set up. Nothing. No call ever happened. And so it went on. So then Naoki Miyagi, the CEO, he got a message inviting him to speak at the next development committee meeting in March. Didn't get much notice. Um, and he said, look guys, I just want to make it clear that I'm not coming on to give you a presentation to present our case. I'm coming on to get you guys to speak about this again, because I think it's been glossed over and the rush decision has been made. So he, he went on, he spoke and at the end of his, his talking, nobody asked him any questions. There was no further dialogue. It was like, thanks Naoki, we'll see you later. And then he was off the call again. So he didn't get a chance for any back and forth. And that's what we were looking for. We wanted to ask questions and we wanted to get to the bottom of why. So then you know, things progress or, or don't progress, kind of sat in silence for, for quite a long time. At which point it wasn't until May, end of May, that we actually got a, something in writing from the ICC, which uh, the regional office had, had really chased saying that here's an out, a long or one page outline of your issues and then what, you know, what it's about. So for us, the biggest issue is that we didn't even take part in three of the last five tournaments. And that's not because there was some criteria that we didn't meet. It's because the way of qualifying for tournaments was based on opinion. The regional offered, you had to apply to take part in the tournament. And if you were deemed good enough, then you got in. Now we'd competed in, in 2007, nine and 11, it was compulsory to take part in under 19 qualifiers as members. So we'd taken part in all three of those. We got our first win in 2011. I mean, we got hammered in some of those games for sure. Um, we were up against some pretty good players. I mean, PNG were red hot at that point and Fiji had some very handy players as well. And so. We, we'd improved, you know, the, you know, the foundations had been laid, but then in 2013, our application is rejected. No reason why, no reason ever given. Same in 15, same in 17. So that was all pretty disappointing. And then the criteria changes. So you actually have to tick certain boxes, which we ticked all of those boxes. And so we're in, and then we come and we win the next tournament. And by winning that tournament, regardless of the circumstances, it does show that we could have been competitive earlier. The fact that our men's national team that Nick, you saw in Das Marinas, most of those guys would have been playing in these under 19 tournaments two years, four years before, because our side's been so young for so long. Guys like uh, Makoto Taniyama, Tsuyoshi Takada, uh, Kohei Wakita, you know, these are guys who would have been playing in these events and, and didn't. So it's not a level playing field. It's not the same for everyone. And it's the same if you look at Africa. Now, the thing that bugs me the most is that they've actually said, well, if you look at the last three tournaments, it's three different winners. Therefore, we had to go back further. That was it. That's the key point in the decision-making process. Therefore. The tournaments from eight and 10 years ago are suddenly more important than the tournament from two years ago. Now we will go on to the fact that that doesn't make any sense because 10 years ago, the players involved were eight years old. Um, so how is that relevant? But more to the point than that is 
it's completely opposite of what they do for the men's and women's, where any result more than four years ago doesn't count for anything. And there's extra weighting placed on results two years ago. And so when they're coming up with a process in case of a COVID cancellation, and bear in mind, they said that under 19 tournaments had to go ahead as if COVID didn't exist. There needed to be zero COVID measures in place for an under 19 tournament to go ahead. So that was never going to happen. So it was always likely that these tournaments were going to be in jeopardy, especially in the EAP where it's all islands, you know, trying to travel is a nightmare. In Europe and Africa, which is why they might go ahead, it's a little bit easier because at least you can, you can travel over land if necessary. But I mean, what we then had was a bunch of decisions, really important decisions being made by guys who don't know the full story. And there are repercussions to that. And what makes it difficult to swallow is I can't think of any other time when a team has had something taken away from it and given to someone else by a decision off field. This isn't like, for example, with the men's situation. You know, I'm very sympathetic to Vanuatu and you've discussed this on your last pod, but Vanuatu in the Philippines were still sat below PNG. So there was no title that they'd won. They'd played for, they played that five over thrash for second place in the tournament. And there was, there was no further qualification by coming second. We've qualified for a world cup and with that comes extra funding. And that is now taken away from us and given to another country. So that funding there are fine, that big financial repercussions that have not been considered. And we've had an admission that they weren't considered from the ICC and no one's going to do anything about it by the sounds of things. So that, you know, has a blowback on us. That could affect our pro what programs we run, what staff we can employ. And to say that, you know, we haven't shown a, a sustained commitment to under 19 cricket. Well, what have we been doing for the last 10 years? You know, they set criteria for us. They told us what to do 10 years ago and set a program and a pathway in place to build the structures. So the issue is that we feel we're on an upward curve, right? We are improving over time and we've got to the tip of our curve. Whereas you've got other teams that are just sort of fluctuating at whatever level. And it's almost like there is a preference for teams that are more established and have been around a bit longer. And that is quite hard to take. And you're, we're used to seeing that in terms of full members and associates. We're not really used to seeing it within the associate world, but I guess there are bigger nations, smaller nations. And again, just to clarify, this is not PNG's doing. It's got nothing to do with them. But I, I understand that there's been a lot of investment into PNG and the ICC probably have a, a vested interest in them being there. Um, it's not totally dissimilar in Africa. It's good that that tournament is going to go ahead. But, um, you know, if it hadn't, then it would be, or if it still doesn't, it, it, Nigeria in the same boat because they've put plans in place. They've come through and done really well. But Namibia, I mean, Namibia didn't even play in one of the qualifiers in the last five years because they'd done so well at the previous World Cup. So it's just, it's kind of mind boggling. You're almost a victim of your own Meteoric rise is probably not the, the best way to describe it, but given how quickly things have grown in Japanese cricket over the last two to four, five, six years, it seems as if it's almost a punishment for getting up to speed quickly. And who's to say that what you guys have set up in Sano and other parts of the country is in any way, shape or form different than what's going on in PNG just because it's, it's more recent? Well, the thing is, this stuff doesn't, like it's... Overnight success doesn't actually happen overnight, right? You know, yeah. we, the kids that we got playing cricket when they were 12, we had to wait six years for them to get to 18 yeah. and be old enough and ready to play in these tournaments. So it may look like a meteoric fast rise, but it's been eight, 10 years in the making. And as a, I mean, Shunoguchi, you mentioned him before, right? He was one of the first kids into our junior programs. He's been playing cricket with us since he was six years old. Uh, he went to a World Cup age 16. He would have had another one in him. Not going to go now. You know, there are human tangible sides to the story, which get ignored by the guys, the men in suits who make these decisions. And, you know, I hate being someone who sits in my own without a solution. And, you know, the, I'm not saying there necessarily is a perfect solution to this problem, but you guys mentioned in pod last week that with a lot of tournaments being canceled, it would have been possible perhaps to use some of those budgets to reallocate them towards global qualifier or something like that. I mean, as I mentioned before, when they, when they looked back for the previous three tournaments and decided that there's three different winners. Why have they gone back further rather than going back to the most recent winner? That would have been logical. And yeah, of course, that works out well for, for me and Japan. But there would have been some logic to that rather than just going back further. It could have been the perfect excuse of having a bigger World Cup as well. Just having two East Asia Pacific qualifiers, having Japan and PNG, or as you said, a more logical idea would probably be a global qualifier or something along those lines where a lot of these nations at this level could compete with one another. So at least we know once they get to the World Cup, we have the best teams competing that come from that group of teams underneath the, the full members that need to qualify. Well, and 
I guess it, it, it sort of looks a bit like, I mean, anytime you're, you're deciding stuff without actually playing matches on the field, you're going to have a substandard decision-making process, right? But I, I think it sort of speaks to two of the big issues that have sort of plagued the ICC administration for a while. And that's just a lack of imagination and, and coming up with kind of more innovative solutions, you know, like you say, maybe a more, an expanded pathway or, or anything like that. And just, just a lack of clarity. It, it just often seems like, as you say, this, this is evidence that decisions are sometimes made just kind of off the cuff and, you know, without a whole lot of consistency or, 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 or transparency. And, you know, that's, that's really unhelpful. And I guess if you as an associate member are trying to plan around that, how, how do you build your team if you, you don't know what the rules are? You can't, can you? I mean, when goalposts get moved, it, it leaves everyone sort of scratching their heads. I mean, one of the frustrating things was in one of the messages we got, I thought it was written down somewhere. It said that, um, here we go. I quote this. Every decision is made after careful consideration of the issues and listening to the views of different stakeholders in order to reach a decision that the board believes is fair and reasonable in all circumstances. Well, I'm pretty sure we're a stakeholder here and no one has got anything with us. <laughs> so, you know, that's clearly not the case. So yeah, look, at, I appreciate how difficult it is, but I totally agree. Lack of imagination is certainly one way of looking at it. And I don't know, it's just all a bit self-serving. Yeah, it was a line in that press release as well that I found a little backhanded and saying, yeah, member agreed protocols or member agreed regulations, which was, I felt was already trying to get ahead of what was coming in saying that this was agreed by you, i.e. your representatives on those, on those committees when the truth it is is less less sure that it that it is than that is is what has happened. So yeah, I, and as you said at the start, you know there are two sides to this, and it's that that process. Yeah, unprecedented world understood, but you know around that, you've got to have some consistency in process. Meaning that if it all happens again, you know you're able to sit on the same process and and be consistent. This is it. And you know Jeff Allardyce, we spoke to the acting CEO, and he said, "Look, this is unprecedented. Number four global pathways events will have to be cancelled." So you know we've been doing our best here. It's like yeah, I get that. That's why it's so important to get the decision right because this will set a precedent which people could refer back to in the future, and that isn't good for anyone because how anyone could think going back ten years for an under nineteen tournament is a good idea. I, I still no one's explained to me why they think it's a good idea. That's what I find so frustrating. And th another huge issue that's come out of this. As I said, we were directed towards the disputes resolution committee, right? Right from the start, we were told that's where you can go. Now, guess what? We can't go there because the disputes resolution committee will only hear the issues that need to be judged on the lawfulness of the decision-making process. Now, the ICC haven't done anything unlawful. Therefore, we have no one to speak to. There is no body, no organization, no independent person who will hear anything on the propriety or the fairness of a decision. And I think that is a massive problem. Yeah. And I'm glad you bring that up because that committee will be used by the ICC should England and India not come to an agreement with what happens in this recent test match that's been cancelled because England and India are negotiating that between themselves. Ergo, the ICC can come in after that and make a ruling through that committee. And if they have to go somewhere independent, they can. But because, and you point this out, because the ICC have made the decision, they're essentially judge, jury and executioner in this situation, aren't they? Because once the decision is made, it's final and... They don't see the need to use the dispute resolution committee. And then we get the result and we just have to live with it. And yes, that decision has been made where they will say that there's been a lot of consultation, a lot of consideration, and that might be true. But the bottom line is for the players here is that they don't get the opportunity to play at a World Cup and come back two years later and, and learn from their, their first instance of playing in it. So what is it like for you to, to go back to them and explain to them what the situation is, because I'm sure that comes with a, a heavy heart. And that's a difficult part of, of what you guys are doing as well. That's the hardest email I've had to write for sure. And you know, the tough part is that I'm having to send this email out in two languages. There's a huge number of people that I can't go and speak to face to face. I can't really explain the details because to be honest, it's, I can't make sense of it myself. And to a cricket playing a non cricket playing nation, how do you explain this kind of decision? And we're just like, what really? So yeah, that has been really, really tough to go back to the players and tell them that, that yeah, we had 11 players from the last tournament still eligible for selection this time around. And that was the whole plan. You know, we, the, the Japan side of it, and you know, this doesn't necessarily come into the decision-making process from the ICC's point of view, but this was the World Cup we were planning for. 
you know, when we put our team together and we started the process of building our under 19 team back up again, properly in 2017, with a view to getting some experience in 2019 and then really challenging for the tournament in 2021. That was always the plan. And then, yeah, we did better than we expected in 2019 and that was fantastic. But we knew we had a group of kids who would be hitting their peak now and they are. And, you know, you can't really say, obviously it's sport, you can't say anything with any certainty, but we would have been going into this tournament feeling pretty confident and, and looking forward to the challenge of coming up against PNG because, you know, didn't do that last time. And Vanuatu, who is still a decent side at that level and seeing how the other guys are going. So it's, it's really tough. It's really hard to try and explain and impossible to, to really do it justice because I had to send an email out saying that this is, looks like it's happening. We'll keep fighting it, but I can't see anything coming of our fight. And I don't know, maybe it reflects back badly on us too. Maybe we, people will say we didn't do enough. I mean, we've done everything we can really. And yeah, ultimately it just shows that when you are a developing cricket nation, your voice doesn't carry a whole lot of weight. Is that the end of it now? Is there any way it can be wrangled to a point where there's some consideration again? I guess it depends if anyone listens to this, doesn't it? <laughs> um, look, we, we've, I don't think so, no. I mean, we've had conversations, like I said, with the acting CEO. Again, I'd, I'd be surprised if anything comes of it. But it's funny that you, you flip it around and there is an undercurrent of opinion that Nepal are seen similarly in the Asian region and things have been done to ensure that they've been propped up and, and put through. And I'm not saying that I'm part of that gang, but it's just interesting that similar perspectives, but they haven't gone through. It's been the, the UAE has gone through and, and Nepal alongside Namibia have been two of the most impressive emerging teams of this century, shall we say, in under-19 World Cups and were, were unlucky themselves when they changed the rules on allowing auto qualifiers from the positions that they were in uh, when they changed and went, went back to fewer auto qualifiers. So it sort of just get, it boggles the mind again as to the wrangling they must have gone in the background for a, a team like Nepal to be excluded on the basis of, of this criteria when, you know, whether it's America, whether it's Nepal and for good reason, but should not be to the detriment of others, but they want to see countries like that, the incentive in playing global events, et cetera. It's just a, it's an interesting point as well, taking this into account. Yeah. Most so there's always winners and losers, but I think that ultimately I just think things need to be fair. And ultimately I think recent performance has to be the most important, uh, swirling for the most Im important denomination, you know? Yeah. Well, the rankings that have just pushed us out, you know, have a, you're a hundred percent waiting for two years only, and then you start going back and, and it goes down and that's in full age cricket. Where it is the same players. Yeah, yeah, it's not much else more ephemeral in world cricket than under-19 cricket in that the generations are shorter. So you'd almost argue that the way that the gradings or the weightings should fall off a cliff, really, when you go back in, back in time. And I'm sure I'm absolutely preaching to the choir here. And whether or not that would have made a difference, that's almost irrelevant, but it would, it would have been a lot more logical to apply a similar rankings weighting you know, it's difficult because it's generally only within a, within a region and we talk about rankings all the time, but it just seems to go over that length of time when the percentage of players who have competed in more than one event, uh, I, I find it baffling. But the argument that we were given is actually using that in the opposite way. They said, well, the players change every time. So therefore the most recent result isn't that relevant. Therefore we wanted to look back longer. Like that's a very odd way of looking at it. Uh, thus the comment about sustained commitment to, yeah. That's when you put to them that we've got 11 players that qualify again. And these are the, the players that have just played at a world cup, but you're not given that opportunity to tell them that. Yeah, for sure. And we can say that, but I mean, I appreciate they're not going to take that into account because everyone's got their own story of why it should be them. So I, I get that and I, I appreciate that, but. Like I said, and as, as you guys all, we're all on the same page here, like 10 years for under 19 cricket, it's just. I remember sitting in a camp chair talking to you in Brisbane and you were, you were making, yeah, this hadn't happened yet, but you, you were saying that all we ask is that we just have a fair process that we can see what we need to do. And if we don't make it, that's fine. But yeah, it's, it's so frustrating when they come up with these systems that just making it up as they go along and. You would have seen in the presentation I sent you guys, sporting integrity is the most important thing, isn't it? And this undermines that enormously. So for me, how can you even hold a World Cup where there are guys who've been just given places without any kind of merit 
But I would think taking the top two, perhaps even from the last two tournament, from the last tournament, if that's what you want to do, and and have a ten team global qualifier, yeah, some kind of repechage tournament or PG Japan playoff, two legged tie, one in Sano, <laughs> one at Amini Park. Oh, you like football? Yeah, I'm all for it. <laughs> I don't know how you how you kind of equate the runs and, and wickets in in terms of results, but I just there's so many things that could be better. Just make sure it doesn't get down to a, a five-over slogathon at Amini Park, okay? In the rain. Don't go there. <laughs> and that goes again to another fundamental issue, rankings and how the rankings are weighted. And Tim, another person who's copped the raw end of, of this, but if there's some positive change to come out of this, I'd like to think that all of it would be worth it. But it's probably not my place to say that, given that I'm not at the at the wrong end of, of all of this happening, unfortunately. Which, yeah, it's it's one of those things where... Put your ukulele down, Daniel. Put your ukulele down. Kumbaya is not going to help us out here. I... Look, it's, and Alan's probably similar. I think you're sort of around these sort of things long enough. You, you learn to be surprised by very few things, but it... it it doesn't mean the uh, the gravitational pull isn't that little bit greater in pulling your heart down out of your body when these things happen. Because again, it's not about you. You know, I think Alan described it beautifully. So sort of talking about writing this email to these people, trying to basically, you know, tell them that their dreams have, have been broken. And again, the dreams that you said yourself that uh, you're making people dream dreams that they never thought they could dream of. And by the way, this is being taken away from you. So when you're the, you're the messenger as well, and you've got to, you've got to carry that burden as, as well. It doesn't, it's not good, but um, if, if good comes of it, Daniel, what would be the good of all this? I guess, you know, we talked about the integrity of the sport and, and the mental health of cricketers. Well, health in general, I guess, is, is just as important there too. You know, there was talk of um, concern over putting minors uh, as most of these cricketers or a lot of these cricketers would be into into a situation where they're going to be in quarantine away from families and whatnot. So I think there's still a lot of a lot of road to run on whether an under-19 World Cup happens in the capacity of what which we, we know it. But um, again, if those decisions are going to be taken, you would have liked for these decisions to be made before the axe coming down the chopping block of the uh, the qualifiers if they're, if they're reconsidering what's happening with the Under-19 World Cup. But uh, yeah, well, from our perspective, if, now that you mentioned it, look, it's one of those things I think we've done the, done the rankings conversation to death. If somebody wants to come up with a better system that seems more fit for purpose, I'd love to see it. I'm no mathematician myself, but when you can go back and look at these things and think, well, oh, geez, if only, only we'd set up a T20 tournament with a certain level of country just to get our scores up. You know, I don't think that's what cricket's all about. We've seen it with full members when full members are refused to play or called off tours to maintain their rankings at a, at a certain point. So you don't want a system that can be gamed. And I guess like everyone in this situation, the disappointing thing is that, that we weren't able to decide this on the cricket field. And I don't think that anybody is sitting there thinking, how do we wrong Vanuatu or how do we wrong Japan? To Alan's point, again, I'm just echoing everything he said, is the consistency around those decisions and, and the consideration that went into them in the first place to ensure there's due process and and engagement with all stakeholders um (laughs) actual consultation because these are big things you know the whatever it whatever it is a 75 or thousand us dollars or whatever it might have been for for an under 90 world cup may not look big on a on an icc report but as alan said about japan you know that that's decisions of which programs to execute and people to employ or people to continue to employ you know it's you, you, it's people's lives and, and livelihoods and it's and that's why these decisions need to be taken with due process and consideration the frustrating thing is that a number of members of the development committee that we've spoken to privately have all said we didn't know the full story we didn't know that you weren't able to play in three of the five tournaments perhaps we should revisit it but as i mentioned at the start once the decision's made, it won't go, they won't go back on it. There was even, we were told that the previous chairman basically wouldn't revisit a decision with for two years. That was the start. Like once the decision's made, it's like not revisiting this for two years. And uh, there's some merit to that because otherwise you just end up having the same conversations over and over again. Like, I do get that. But we're back to this consulting with stakeholders again. Did you consult with everyone? Did everyone know the decision they were making? And they clearly didn't. People did not know the history and the background. And as I said right at the beginning, if everyone knew that stuff and still made the same decision, we'd cop it. We'd, I'd be just as baffled and just be, just as upset, but at least I would have to say, well, okay, a lot of guys who know more than I do weighed things up and made this decision, but that's not what's happened. I'm trying to think of an equivalent idea on the full member side of things that would deliver the same amount of amusement if it was to occur. And you would think that in that situation, the ICC would be looking at every single infinitesimal digit and number in regards to working out who would be the best 
team or the best country to benefit from a decision like this. But the impression that we have from your consultations with them and in general is that there's just not a whole lot of consideration and not a lot of research too. And it makes you wonder that with over a hundred members, just how much time in total is being used to discuss what happens outside the full member 12. If decisions like this on such a grand, serious nature are thrown away so simply, what's happening day to day in that office for us to sit there and think, okay, this is, they're doing these things often on the field to make the game better for every single person involved. Well, we did have a World Cup decided by a, count, a boundary countback. That's not, uh, so. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a good point too. Yeah. <laughs> the under-19 World Cup is the biggest tournament that the ICC holds. 16 teams. So you'd think that who plays in it would be of some importance. And I don't know, perhaps they've taken the view that regardless of how we did two years ago, PNG is still the best team and therefore they're going to get the spot. And if that's what they feel, then Jim, I don't see why they just came out and said it. So where to next? Yeah, obviously this has kind of torpedoed the you know, multiple year plan with the under 19 side, but where does Japanese cricket go both in the under 19s level and you know, flowing through to the senior level? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so actually we're at the, or next year we'll be at the final year of our current five-year strategy. So we've just literally in the last few weeks begun discussions around what the next one would look like from 2023 to 2027. Uh, that will incorporate the 2026 Asian games in Japan. So it's going to be a big strategy, that one. It's an important one for us. And we don't look at these five-year strategies in isolation. This last one has been the second one of four leading to a 20-year strategy leading up to 2032. So we kind of try and look at everything in, in the context of that, where we want to be in 2032. And those goals were set out however long ago, eight years ago, 10 years ago. And so we continue to work towards that, really. The goal of hopefully professional players one day, maybe some kind of professional league, even if it's just a, a short one, a, a Hong Kong Blitz style league, perhaps. Good idea that. Yeah. We want to keep working on more live streaming, better coaching, you know, all of these things. We continue to build the blocks. You know, we're not expecting cricket to become a overnight sensation and, and suddenly the number one sport in Japan, but we want to make sure that we have the building blocks in place so that when participation does hopefully increase, we can sustain it because what you don't want is suddenly a, a mass influx of players who want to learn the game, want to take it up, and we don't have the infrastructure to keep them. So we continue building those, continue building our competition structures, our leagues, our junior programs, our women's comps, keep providing people with opportunities to play the sport and hope that uh, when they take it up, they fall in love with it and stay in the game because that's, that's the ultimate goal really, isn't it? got a uh, very pertinent question regarding your development program uh, that you developed the blast and, and, and beyond to where it's grown to now. I think most listening to the podcast would, we've talked about it in the past that, uh, that all associates are, are graded against each other, according to the, the data from the census on the ICC scorecard and, and funding is attributed. And one of the, the major contributors is the participation numbers and, and playing numbers. But the challenge with that is you can only count one child in any one year once in a participation program and if you go back and see the same kid 10 times there's no incentive for you from a from a, a ranking point of view but how much impact do you get you mentioned before that you don't have the tens of thousands of kids in the blast that you'd envisaged but what you do have you've got a a small group of, of skilled cricketers that i would say the stickiness and keeping them in the game it sounds like it's been retained can you just Give us your thoughts on that reflecting on what you probably thought was going to be a mass participation program with the emphasis being on a mass and how, and how that's gone and, and how you balance the competing agendas of being marked against participation numbers versus actually getting the most impact and outcome for the game itself. Yeah, well, the BLAST remains our mass participation program. We still hope that it will be. In the future, we still are rolling it out in more regions. I think there's, you know, prior to COVID, I think we had six regions running cricket blast programs now. A couple of those without JCA direct involvement, people have taken it up themselves, which is fantastic. So we still feel that that can be a mass participation program. That's what it's designed for. And, and we hope it, it will do that. Um, but like I said, it's then having those other next step structures in place because hey, Japan's a pretty big and pretty spread out country. So if, for example, there's a place down in Mie, which is, you know, a fair way from here. No cricket grounds near there. So a bunch of kids under 12 play cricket. They love it. Where do they go next? And that's the challenge really is trying to, you know, we're a small organization, as I said, eight, 10 people. We can't cover the whole country. And that's why we've targeted approaches to Sano and to Kaizuka and to Akashima. Uh, these, these regions that we've worked with, work with the board of education, get cricket in the curriculum, 
get it taught in schools. Those are the most important things. But so what you say, Tim, yes, absolutely. The frustration around the scorecard system, and it's no different for the senior men's competitions. Our senior men's comp is we have three, the JCL, concrete league for the over league. We've got 27 teams across three divisions playing in a normal year, 10 rounds each. And that counts the same as if they play five matches each. You know, the strength of a competition is not relevant. It's just a competition. And, you know, when you're getting people playing more and more cricket, surely that's what we want, right? Surely we want some kind of incentive. It would actually be better for us rather than playing 10 rounds. We should split the competition halfway through and rename it and get everyone in the teams to name themselves, give them a new team name, and then we'll just keep playing. And then there's two competitions and that counts as twice so many players. I mean, this, the program can be manipulated so easily and obviously we're not doing that, but you should incentivize stronger competitions. Likewise, these participants that you're talking about at junior level, they have changed it. So participation numbers only count for like 1% now, whereas players count for like 4%. So we're trying to get kids if we're going to see them four times, well, we'll get them playing games. We will get them playing games and scoring games so that we can count them as players rather than participants. It's a simple, simple thing. Every time we do a school visit, if we're going back to the same school four times, well, we'll take some scorecards. We'll play a game at the end and we'll make sure it's recorded. And that's, uh, uh, that's a game. Yeah. Modified playing. It's modified playing. Exactly. And look, that, that's not a bad system anyway, but yeah, we've, from the day one I came here, I very much believed that regular participation was most important. There's some study done. If you do something six times, it becomes a habit. So we had a lot of one-off school visits that we would do, but try something once. You're not like to pick it up and do it for the rest of your life. You have to have repeated exposure. And so even now, eight years on, it's the same battle we're still fighting. But, you know, some progress is being made and we'll keep doing that because that's, that's the job. And for some kids, it'll work. I mean, the one thing I'll say, because I've done a countless school visits in Japan and every time I do one, the kids love playing cricket just as much as any kid in England or Australia or South Africa or India. You know, they love the experience. They have a great time. So if there was exposure to the game, if there was infrastructure around for them to do it more often, then they might do that. And cricket numbers would be a lot higher. So when people say to me, oh, you wouldn't expect the Japanese to play cricket. Why? Anyone can play cricket. It's just a game. A question that comes straight to my mind when you're mentioning that about infrastructure and support. And I think it's worthy asking it, considering what's happening in the, in the news at the moment about the Olympics and future sports, what, what effect would Olympic inclusion have on cricket in Japan? Significant, I would think just because image is so important over here. And when you say that you're not an Olympic sport, you know, people switch off pretty fast. So being an Olympic sport would definitely help. Even when cricket dropped off the Asian games had an impact on us. We were no longer a member of the Japan Olympic committee, but whereas, you know, we're back in that we have like a social membership or something now and it becomes an Olympic sport. Then yeah, suddenly we get access to more funding. People take us more seriously. Suddenly there's exposure, like the Asian games are coming up next year. Hopefully we'll get a lot more media exposure and that matters. That counts. That gives people an incentive to play the game because you know, you need to give people the dreams. You need to give people something to aspire to. And that's why these world cups or championships are so important. Um, and when you see them falling by the wayside, look, no one can predict COVID, but what, what else is there? So what's next and, and how do we make sure that the dreams stay? Because we will have lost players. I mean, I talk about our five-year strategy at the end of 2019, we were pretty much on target to hit the vast majority of our KPIs, certainly in terms of playing numbers. Now they've taken a hit as you would expect over the last two years. So we've got ground to make up. That's just the way it is, but hopefully we can do that. And I'm sure there's lots and lots and lots of countries in worse situations than us, probably, you know, we've, we've not been too bad, but there are certain sections, women's cricket, university cricket that's really suffered and they're important for us. So yeah, we've got to, got to get back on that and having the Asian games and, and you know, women's youth world cups is something that's on the horizon. Hopefully these are all things that, you know, you can use to promote the sport. Well, in the Asian games, um, next year in, in Hangzhou and then 2026 in Nagoya, um, you know, cricket is a listed sport next year. What's Japan cricket's strategy in terms of, uh, is there a qualification pathway for that? Or, or are you just sort of hoping that the, um, kind of overall, uh, spotlight of, of the games will highlight cricket a bit more? I wasn't involved in the 2014 part. I wasn't part of my role back then. So it's new to me. Well, like an email that actually popped into my inbox just before we started this call and I'm ready yet from the Asian games organizing committee. So I should probably have a read of that. Um, but I know that the cricket side of the Asian games organizing committee have just contacted everyone to ask for their interest in participating. And if they want to put in one team or two teams and they've gathered all that information, which will then go back, I guess, to the organizing committee and they will figure out how many teams 
they can or want to hold. Uh, I don't think that's been decided yet how many teams there will be. I mean, the format in 2014 was a bit of a joke in that I can't remember how many teams took part, but Japan, because we'd got a bronze medal in 2010, we got a bye straight through to the quarterfinals. So our women's team were sat around for 12 days with nothing to do. Couldn't really train because the cricket ground was being used for the other round robin matches. So then we played a quarterfinal against China. who had already played three games. So we were coming in cold and we lost. So it wasn't, it wasn't great. Um, so I hope they come up with a better setup than that. But um, yeah, I don't really know how the quarterfinal will go. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Japan, traditionally, the JOC have said to us, which team do you think is more likely to get a medal? And they'll probably only want to pay for one team. So hopefully we can send both, but we'll have to wait and see on that. And if there is a qualifying tournament, well, yeah, we'll, we'll play in that. I'll have to wait and see again. All right. Now it's time to ask the real questions. <laughs> As someone who is a keen listener of the Emerging Cricket Podcast and a friend of the show, you would know that we ask every single guest if there was a law change in the sport of cricket, what would it be and why? I'm, I'll let your mind tick over. Do you have anything off the top of your head or do you need a couple more moments to uh, collect? So obviously I knew this question was coming and when I first started listening to the show, I gave this quite a lot of thought and I had laws for T20, ODI and tests. Wow. And they were good too. Really good suggestions. And I've now forgotten all of them. <laughs> Since we set this up three days ago, I've been trying to remember them and I can't, which is really annoying. Um, I think I remember my T21 though. So my T21, stop me if you've heard this before, but the LBW law was invented for multi-day cricket, long format cricket to stop people sticking their leg in the way of the stumps to avoid getting out. The law has barely changed for 150, 70 years or something. In T20, if it's hitting the stumps, it should be out. That's it. Mm. T20 is the vehicle for growth of the sport worldwide in emerging nations. Trying to explain the LBW law is a nightmare. Trying to explain why is even harder. So if we want to get new people into the game, like who's padding up to balls out, pitching outside leg stump in T20? You're having a crack at it, aren't you? Who's shouldering arms and not playing a shot mm. and getting hit outside the line of off stump? Like you're not, you're playing shots. So why give batsmen a life basically? It's in the stars, it's out. I like how intuitive it is and, and, and an eye on, we had a couple of these to try to uh, explain it a bit better in uh, new markets. So that's, that's a good one. Yeah. I think, you know, in Tesco, you can say the same, it's fine, but for T20, for sure, just don't, I don't see why. Do you know what frustrates me the most is that this was something they could have done with a hundred. Like the, the ECB had an opportunity to make T20 cricket better by getting funky with some rules that other countries might have brought into their leagues. And might have, that would have made the ECB relevant again. Mm. Instead, they came up with a new format, which is the last thing we, cricket needs. Well, the reporting was that they were originally going to get rid of the LBW rule altogether. Altogether, yeah, which is obviously bonkers. But yeah, there are rules that, you know, cricket's a brilliant game that's been around for hundreds of years. The rule that came in for LBW is not relevant in T20 cricket anymore. And the pitching outside leg something has, it's always been there. The ball always used to have to pitch in line with the stumps. And there's been one change to the LBW rule when they brought in the pitching outside off was allowed to be out if it's coming back in. But they haven't changed the rule at all for 50 odd years since 1970, they made that change. So yeah, I, I think in T20 cricket, it's just not relevant. I could probably extend that a little bit. I'd love to know how often a ball pitches outside leg stump and ends up hitting someone in line and goes on to hit the stumps anyway. You almost don't need the pitching out line stipulation in the law because the other two factors to the LBW normally negate any decision anyway. So just leg spinners, right? Yeah. Ravi Bishnoi coming through and, and ripping through Japan already with an IPL contract is. Don't mention that now. <laughs> <laughs> cold sweats. Look. We've just, it's been an emotional roller coaster for him, Daniel. What are you doing? I got over the worst of it. I look at it positively. I, I think if you guys went toe to toe with a player of that quality and six months later, he's playing IPL cricket. I think that says more about how good you are than, than Lance. Would have been great if he'd bought around the drinks off you, Ben. <laughs> Once again, Alan, thank you for joining the Emerge Cricket Podcast. It's been great to get your perspective on all the issues, especially in regards to the Under-19 World Cup and, and everything that came out of that. Good luck with everything in Japan. We look to that area with, with envy. It's been great to see the, the growth of, of the game in the country in Japan play at the World Cup and at the highest level, albeit 
at underage level. Once again, thanks for joining us on the Emerge Cricket Pod. Thanks, guys. It's been a real pleasure. Take care. All the best. That concludes this episode of the Japan Cricket Podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening. And if you really enjoyed listening, then I would be forever grateful if you could rate and review the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts. It would just help others to find the show and have the added bonus of making me feel a little bit better about myself. Until next time, arigatou gozaimashita.